0: And welcome to 10x9, where nine people have up to ten minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran, and this is the 10x9 Podcast. Potter Gautuma and I started 10 by 9 in September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast, and we love it. We're still waiting for dates for live venues to reopen here. But in the meantime, we've been on Zoom and that means you can join in whether you want to tell a story or be part of the audience wherever you are in the world. And I'll have a little bit of news for you at the end. Now, there are three stories on this podcast which reflect the wonderful variety of people that are part of 10 by 9. On June the 11th, we teamed up with our friends in Scotland for Columba Fest, which is a festival run by the Iona community. The theme was trip and we had amazing stories. Here's one of them from first timer Fiona Evans.
1: So um, my mobile phone was flashing and ringing in the middle of the night and it was my daughter, Emma. And she had gone for the first time to the music festival tea in the park. Uh, She'd gone with her friends and her boyfriend. She had been so looking forward to it. It was a trip of a lifetime for her and she'd been waiting for it for a very long time. However, it was clearly not what she'd hoped for, uh, because as I picked up the phone, she was crying. And as a mother, I started to feel, what has happened? She quickly explained that actually she had lost her festival pass. And that wasn't good, as that meant she couldn't get into any of the music venues, and she wasn't allowed to get it replaced. Um, and then she said she'd also lost one of her wellies and it was raining and as well as that her tent which was pitched a bit too close to the toilets to the extent that people couldn't quite differentiate whether it was a toilet or a tent so that was not great either so she was very unhappy and she decided she'd have to come home and sure enough, they arrived, her and her boyfriend, um, first thing in the morning. They crashed in the house, went on the couch and they fell asleep. Once recovered after a few hours sleeping, they decided they'd go out for another wee trip in the car. Um, and it wasn't long before my mobile phone was ringing again and Emma's name was flashing up. This time, She was telling me that John, her boyfriend, had dropped his car keys down a drain. So uh, just to fill you in on where we live, we live in a multicultural area called Pollock Shields, which has become very famous recently for Kenmuir Street. And this uh, happened in Kenmuir Street. So uh, our stepdad went down to the car, and, uh, and at that point, uh, he looked at the situation and he decided that there really wasn't much hope. These car keys were down in this drain and there wasn't much she could do. He came back, but on me hearing that, I thought, no, there's something we must be able to do. So I grabbed a coat hanger and a magnet, as you do, and went down to the drain. When I arrived there, uh, you know, thinking I would spring spring into action, there were already four um, people round the drain with Emma and John. And they also really, really interestingly had coat hangers and magnets. So I'm not quite sure who was selling them or where they all came from. But anyway, they were there. They were poking down in the drain into the mire below and Emma and John were standing watching this activity. But unfortunately, this wasn't successful. However, the activity attracted a lot more people and animated conversations began around the drain as the numbers swelled to 20. And all the possibilities of how we might retrieve these keys from the drain were being discussed. And at this point, it was quite incredible. It was as if the the waves were parting, a man arrived. And he was different from the others. He had a cream linen suit on and soft leather shoes. And he stood glowing among us all. And the crowd just parted and watched him, every eye drawn to him. He very quickly started to give commands in Urdu and the folk were following what he was saying. And at this point, six people sprang into action and started to lift the drain up from the ground. Now, I don't know if anyone has seen a drain come up, but it's not just the top sort of mesh. As you lift it up, there's a huge, big wad of iron underneath. So it's incredibly heavy. And it was sort of cast to the side, like a big lolloping seal at the side. And as that was happening, more commands came from this man. His jacket was removed and someone held it for him. He then bent down, took off his shoe and started to roll up his trouser leg. Silent among the crowd as he put his foot and leg down into the drain. We watched in astonishment as he felt round in the mire in the viscous, horrible stench and to try and find the keys with his foot. After about 20 minutes, he pulled his foot out And people said, have you finished? And he turned and looked at everyone and said, have I found the keys yet? And at this point, everyone just agreed that we had to continue. He then gave orders. There was a mini market at the corner and um, he went into the mini market and asked them to bring out these gallon plastic containers and asked them to cut the top off of them. He then ordered um, people to put them round the drain and he lay down on the ground and started to to scoop out all the dirt from the drain and throw it onto the pavement. The coct hanger people were very excited because they were employed once again, because they could then scoop the, um, look through the mire with, their coat hangers to see if the drain, if the keys were there. So we did this for another 30 minutes and, uh, and after a while, unfortunately, the keys weren't found. However, he wasn't giving up and he decided to lie down on the ground once again and this time he put his whole head into the drain, along with his hands and his arm and stretched down into the drain and felt down. People were holding his legs at the other end and he went down in and felt round down the bottom. And he, after about 10 minutes, came up and this time he had the keys. There were now 40 people round the drain at this point. And the the cheer from the people was just enormous and quite incredible for Emma and John who couldn't believe that the keys had been found. Everyone sort of started to say, oh, you'll have to give him something. He's done such an amazing thing. And people were bringing out water to wash his hands and we were thanking him profusely and saying, thank you so much. It was just incredible. And we actually um, asked him what his name was. And he turned and said to us, my name is India. And the Pakistani boys, a group of young boys standing at the side, were saying, no, no, you're Pakistani. You're Pakistani. You're not Indian. And he just smiled. He then told us lots of stories about, um, you know, what he'd done in his life and how far he'd been and the trips that he had gone and the things that he'd learned from where he'd been. And one of them was to find things in drains that actually it was how he had done it and he'd done it by his feet. He then actually, uh, after refusing anything from us, um, got his jacket back on turned round, said goodbye and walked up the road and we never saw him again in that area and we've lived there for 34 years.
0: What a brilliant community, Fiona. Thanks so much for telling us about it and what an amazing central character. And if you want to see Fiona telling that story and all the other stories from that evening, go along to our YouTube channel. Practically all our Zoom stories are there in bite-sized chunks going right back to April 2020. Now, our next story, in fact, both our remaining stories come from another June evening when we teamed up with the Belfast Photo Festival, which we do every year. We asked for one picture and one story, and the stories were phenomenal. It was midsummer and freezing cold, but we loved it. First up is Paul Whittington.
2: With impending retirement and all this free time, I decided I needed a few options to prevent degenerating into person watching daytime television, homes under the hammer, escape to the sun. I've always felt there was a thespian hiding inside me, so I registered on the extras website. The form requires you to fill in information about yourself, such as height, weight, your vital statistics. The next section is about body confidence. Would you appear topless? 25 pounds extra, tick, would have done it for 15. Also, would you be prepared to appear in a bathing suit? Once again, tick, but perhaps Ulster has suffered enough. The next section dealt with any particular skills that you have. Dancing, tick, musical instruments, tick, also stage combat, circus skills, horse riding, your ability to speak in different accents. Accents, well, I have a full range from the lilting West Cork, Ballymena, through Newcastle upon Tyne, right through to East Belfast. All of these questions I answered honestly, well in my imagination. Forms submitted confirmation email received welcoming me. All I had to do was wait for the call. I don't mean to boast, but I will. I had availability checks for Marcella season four, Line of Duty season six, all of them came to naught. Then COVID hit and everything was suspended. So many months passed and no emails. Then out of the blue came a text for a BBC drama. Bursting with excitement, I responded immediately, attaching a recent photo of myself. The very next day, I got a call telling me that I would be used for two days filming. A further email arrived, supplying me with the relevant information. It also contained a warning that I was not allowed to tell anyone about the production, what it was about. And if I broached the secrecy, I would be immediately removed from the set and could jeopardize future employment as an extra. So I told everyone that it was a Northern Ireland remake of Baywatch. The responses I received left me in no doubt what they thought my role would be. On a cold November morning, we were required to report at 5.30 a.m. at the Buff Club in Ryder Square, Belfast. I signed in, got my mask, a green one. Now this is significant, which I discovered later. Extra with a green mask were not allowed to get too close to any of the stars while those with a white mask had been COVID-tested, thus allowing them to mingle with the actors. All the actors, sorry, all the extras sat socially distant from each other and waited while the wardrobe mistress came and inspected the clothes we had brought for the two seasons, summer and winter. It is fair to say that she made no encouraging noises about my outfits and with a weary shrug of her shoulders said, well, they'll do. This was in marked contrast to the lady she visited before me. The wardrobe mistress thought that this extra's clothes were just perfect. And a long conversation ensued about where the clothes had been purchased. Next came the hairdresser who sprayed, brushed, coiffed and combed hair. For some inexplicable reason, she didn't spend any time with me, which I took to mean that I had got my hairstyle just right. The first scene was summertime. So when the call came, we left the Buff Club and assembled round the corner in our T-shirts. The next hour was spent watching falling leaves being brushed away as the rain started. We were all in high spirits, but after nearly 20 takes of the scene, we were soaked as the rain was now lashing down. Our protest signs had disintegrated. Lunch was called and we retreated to the sanctuary of the Buff Club to dry ourselves, thaw out, eat our lunch, then change for the second scene, which thankfully was in winter, so big coats and warm jumpers were now worn. The afternoon session was filmed in gathering gloom in monsoon weather conditions. 16 takes later, the best word we heard was rap, which indicated the day was over. As we trudged away, a text came telling us the start time for the following day was 7 a.m. The second day was very illuminating, as it showed the hierarchy of the film set. And you were conscious of your position, which was at the bottom. We arrived at Stormont to find the crew just starting to set up, so we were put in our positions and our costumes checked by the wardrobe czar. She didn't like my beanie hat, so I had to promise not to wear it during the shooting. Also, she set my scarf in a particular way. She firmly warned me that if I, I was not to change the way the scarf was set, I was left feeling I'd been treated like a naughty schoolboy. We then had to practice 15 times our reaction to a text message received by a fellow extra. The words reset, rolling, background mime, masks on, background masks off and cut are now burnt into my subconscious. Just in case we didn't know our place, we were referred to as background. After being in place for just over two hours, thankfully it was not raining, it was a cold bright day, three black Mercedes rolled up. The doors were opened by a member of the crew and our stars exited. To be met by another crew member wrapping them in a big coat, another providing them with a chair, and finally one with a steaming hot beverage. Then they were surrounded by makeup artists and hairdressers. As the really important people had arrived, we then went into recording the scene. We retook the scene many times. If there was a break in filming, Chairs would from nowhere would appear for the three cast members, warm coats draped over their shoulders and cups of coffee supplied. A few hours into the shoot, the black cars returned and the three actresses departed in splendid isolation in their own big black Mercedes. The crew had their lunch and cups of coffee as we sat down the concrete and waited. The extras were getting restless. We had not been even given a cup of tea. We had to ask could we go to the toilet. The crew member looked at his watch and seemed impressed at our bladder control. So a 10 minute break was called to get 50 people through a couple of port Back on the set the Mercedes had returned we were able to start shooting the second scene. The actresses and crew revived by their lunch were in high spirits while the extras were getting mutinous. The sun was getting lower in the sky, the temperature was dropping So between takes, I put on my beanie, less than a minute later, the wardrobe lady wearing a warm coat with matching gilet, a woolly hat on her head, clutching her steaming cup of coffee rushed over to remonstrate with me. Take off your hat. We can see you. Why are you wearing your hat? I must say by this stage, I was slightly peeved. So rather testily, I replied, I don't wear my hat during the shoot. It's getting Baltic. Okay. Okay. Promise me you'll take your hat off and don't move that scarf and off she went. That's you told, the cow, the lady beside me said. We started another shoot. We had to wave our poster on poles and mine shouting. A gust of wind caught my poster, causing the edge to slam into my head. I carried on till the end. It was a fellow extra to point out that my head was now bleeding. The sun had now set. Everyone was getting tired and cold. We had to retake the final scene so many times with different camera angles. It was a crowd scene with multiple cameras, moving through the crowd with us cheering, always watching for the cameras so that we never obstructed its movement. Eventually everything was finished and at 4.30 p.m. our lunch arrived. Sadly, there was not enough lunches for everybody. We all piled into the minibus, socially distant and masked. There was not much conversation as everyone was weary. I drove home a new awareness of the work that goes into making a few minutes of film, wondering if I would end up on the cutting room floor. As you can see, I made it onto the screen for a total of four seconds. Notice no beanie hat, even though the temperature dropped close to freezing. On the first day, I was an angry protester, on the second day, a joyful one, thus showing my full range of emotions. Looking back on the experience, it was interesting and enjoyable, and I'm still waiting for the call.
0: Thanks so much, Paul. You've really suffered for your art. Good luck with future productions. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. But we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our costs and keep us going through this period. We are so thankful to everyone who has donated. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10 dot That is story at 10by9.com. Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. Okay, on to our third story now. And again, it was from our Belfast Photo Festival evening, and you can see the photos that go with these stories on our social media channels, that is Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Breeze McGinley joined us from her home in Donegal. Prepare to be moved.
3: It's a photograph of my parents on the day they first met. They stand on the Gibara Bridge, their backs against new concrete, and behind them, the Gibara River lies like a ribbon along the valley from Lokbara through Dohery, flowing between low hills painted against the backdrop of the Derry Bay Mountains. My mother is 30 years old, my father, two years older. They stand together, shoulders not quite touching. My mother wears a knee length coat and in the black and white photo, it is light colored and fastened with large translucent buttons. She is smiling, looks almost serene, but I can see that she's not at ease. My father wears a suit and he leans back against the bridge, arms crossed, looking relaxed, handsome. Something shimmers in his left lapel, most likely his pioneer pin. His gaze is direct, a crooked half smile, and I feel his fierce blue eyes look at me. It is a Thursday. My mother, Kathleen, has been at home in Cresla all week preparing for her wedding on Friday. But the previous morning, her sister Sue, the prospective bridesmaid, heard her crying in bed. The bridegroom and her fiancé of 10 years had begun drinking again. My mother didn't know how to call the wedding off. Sue didn't listen to her pleas not to tell their mother Better the Wednesday before than the Wednesday after, Granny said, not pausing from the milking. But she insisted that my mother relay the news to the invited guests herself. So on Thursday, Sue and her fiancé, Gus, drove my mother to the houses of relatives and friends. Later in the day, because they were close by and because my mother was distraught, Gus suggested that as a diversion, they call on his brother Dominic, who on his... recent promotion to sergeant had been transferred from Cork to Douhury. So my father, always ready for an excursion, joined them and on the Ghebar Bridge they stopped to take photographs. When they looked at the camera that day, my parents didn't know they would be married within a year, that the first of their 11 children would be born nine months after their wedding. They didn't know that they would move to many different towns, that they would leave behind two babies in unmarked graves. They didn't know yet the pattern of car trips over so many years that would build a repertoire of family songs. The West's Awake, The Holy City, Huff the Magic Dragon, an effort to unsuccessfully stave off car sickness. That day, they couldn't have imagined the world that was waiting for them, how the certainties of church and state would crumble in their lifetimes. How they would deal with adult children emigrating, grandchildren conceived outside marriage, homosexuality, suicide. They didn't know that my father, an ardent teetotaler, would succumb to alcohol in his middle years and wrestle with it until the end. They couldn't foresee my mother's descent into dementia in her 80s, unable to remember anything except the words of the emigrant's letter, to which we faithfully joined in the chorus they're cutting the corn in Cresla the day. As they stood on the Gibara Bridge the day they met, my mother was someone entering her own power for a however brief period. My father knew he was in the presence of beauty, a feeling he held on to even after my mother was buried and he wanted to join her. The last time I saw him, unable to walk or talk but with full mental capacity, his eyes held the same piercing quality shadowing his thoughts that ran like a river through bewilderment, to anger, to sadness. And when I searched for this photo, I couldn't have known that I would set aside all that history. I didn't know that my sadness and grief would dissipate in the evening mist over the gibberra. I didn't know that instead, I would see my mother smile on a country road in springtime as she inhaled the first primrose's delicate scent that I would see the arc of her arm as she scattered grain like confetti to feed the chickens she finally managed to acquire in our small garden town, town garden. That I would see my father sitting at his mother's untunable piano that they brought with them to every house we lived in, playing his flourishing rendition of the maiden's prayer. But mostly, I didn't expect the sudden intense recollection of how their eyes sparkled when they looked at each other or that I would see them chatting and laughing, easy and relaxed, with relatives, friends, strangers, and remember how we children eavesdropped on stories that suggested our parents were so much more than we would ever know. In my mind, my parents still stand together on the Dee Bridge, their backs to the mountains, facing the widening estuary where the river drifts through golden sand towards the setting sun. My mother's eyes dance, I hear her soft voice. My father's mantra was that everyone should have a party piece. And now he sings his, laughing at my mother's modest protestations. His vivid eyes sparkle while her brown eyes glow. I hear his voice wavering across the bridge, across time. Notes rising and falling with the ebb and flow of the tide. Oh, I will take you back, Kathleen to where your heart will feel no pain and when the fields are fresh and green i'll take you to your home again
0: oh my goodness Oh, <laughs> what did I say, Bridge? You make me want to cry. That was beautiful. That was so so beautiful. And that is like, a, is such a gorgeous, gorgeous photograph. It's so touching. Really, really is. Um, thank you so much. What a wonderful um, tribute to your parents. Really bringing them to life, flaws and all, which I, I think is, I think is how we should remember um, people, especially our parents. Thank you.
3: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, I was I was surprised how writing the piece I worked. You know, the flows are generally what well what can stay in your mind. You know, what you remember. But uh, I, I went through that, went to happier times. You know, so it was very interesting.
0: It certainly was, Bridge. I can't thank you enough. That was a very special story that touched so many of us there that evening. And that is pretty much it for this podcast and pretty much it from 10x9 for the summer. We have an event coming up on July 29th with Banger's Open House Festival. The theme for that is Seaside Story, so if you've got a beach memory, go along to the guidelines page on our website 10x9.com and get in touch. Otherwise, we're planning to wind down over July and August. It's proving practically impossible to compete on Zoom and so much is opening up. And let's face it, if you have a choice of staring at a computer, or going to a restaurant or a bar, or catching up with friends and loved ones during these bright evenings, well, there's no competition. And that is fair enough. Also, the podcast is going on a brief hiatus. We're planning to give it a bit of an overhaul. But watch out for the odd bonus pod. And remember, there are hundreds of stories that you've probably not heard that you can go back and listen to. This podcast is a 10x9 production, and if you've ever wondered who makes our amazing and hilarious photos, that's the brilliant Padre Thanks to you for listening and a special big warm thank you to Leanne McConville who helped with the Zoom operation on our photo evening. But thanks most of all to Fiona Evans, Paul Whittington and Bridge McGinley. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, enjoy your summer. Bye bye.